0: As most of you know, we're in the middle of a sermon series about Old Testament types of Christ. That is, figures in the Old Testament that God presented to be a type of foreshadowing or an incomplete picture of some of the things that Jesus would accomplish perfectly in his life, his death, his resurrection, and both his earthly and eternal ministries. So today we're going to begin our time in Hebrews 8. You can go ahead and turn there. Until now, we've heard about Adam being a type of Christ, Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. Yet I would argue, and I think a lot of people would argue, that none of them overshadowed ancient Jewish culture, history, and religion the way that Moses did. Moses touched every aspect of ancient Israelite culture and religion. So today we're going to consider how Moses presented a type of Christ. The parallels between Moses and Jesus, I really didn't expect to find nearly as many (laughs) as I did in preparing for this sermon, but just consider some of the parallels. Moses, uh, an Israelite, was raised in the house of Pharaoh, and in order to deliver his people from their bondage and oppression, he had to leave Egypt. And Matthew tells us that Jesus, in a sense, did the same thing. He spent the first small portion of his life in Egypt, before God brought him out of Egypt to Israel, uh, where he would be raised, learn, and eventually complete his ministry. Uh, similarly, Moses left his royal palace of Pharaoh's house, left royalty, humbled himself to become one of his people so that he could deliver them. And Philippians 2 tells us that's the exact same thing that Jesus did when he left the heavenly throne room, took on flesh, became a man so that he could deliver us from our bondage. In the same way, Moses left royalty, became one of his people, and they didn't recognize him as their savior. They didn't recognize him as as their deliverer, so they rejected him. John 1 tells us the same thing happened uh, to Jesus. Moses told the Israelites to prepare for God's wrath by covering their house, uh, their doorposts, with blood of the sacrificed lamb. And Jesus said for us to prepare for God's wrath and prepare for God's judgment by covering ourselves with his blood. And that's the way that we'll be spared. Finally, God used Moses to institute a covenant with his people. Uh, In the Bible, it goes by a lot of different names. So you'll hear me use several different terms probably uh, throughout this sermon. But it's called the Mosaic Law. It's called the Torah. It's called uh, just the law. It's called the customs of Moses. We'll see in Hebrews uh, in Acts 15 later on. But it's the first five books of our Bible, and it was God's uh, covenant with his people. And Jesus came, and he said he came to fulfill that law perfectly, to fulfill that law. And then he was going to institute another covenant that would be a better, greater covenant. So the parallels, I trust that you see they're striking. There's there's more than that, but they're everywhere. But what we're going to focus on today is less of the person of Moses and the person of Jesus and more on the covenants that they instituted. So that's where we'll spend our focus for today. If you're already at Hebrews 8, we're going to read the first six verses, really with the aim of getting to the sixth verse. We're reading the first five verses more or less just for context so we can see the full picture, but I really want us to hone in on the sixth verse and then we'll launch into our sermon. Let's begin in verse one. Now the point in what we are saying is this: We have such a high priest, he's referring to Jesus here, one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy place, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. When he says the true tent, he means the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And there he means the Mosaic law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, talking about the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain and then here it is. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So why is the covenant that Jesus instituted, why is that one better than the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant? There are several answers that can be given to that, and there's several right answers, even uh, in Hebrews we see that he said because it's enacted on better promises, and that's true. But what we're going to focus on today is one characteristic, the foundational characteristic, I think, uh, that makes it better, and that's that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was founded on law and works. That's, that was the foundation of the Mosaic covenant. Jesus instituted a covenant that was grace through faith. It was a faith-based covenant. And so in order for us to appreciate the weight of the law of Moses on the Jewish culture in ancient Israel, I want us just to consider how it touched every piece of their culture and then consider how it affected their relationship with God or how it directed their relationship with God. The, the covenant that God established through Moses In the broadest sense, it was the final authority on all things related to sin, righteousness, sacrifice, tithes, offering, the way they worked, the way they rested, the charity that they gave, and even their annual festivals. And every aspect of their life was somehow directed by this covenant. There were 613 laws that they had to keep. And so think about that. If they had to keep 613 laws, that means that they had to know 613 laws. So for that reason, by the time Jewish boys reached teenage years, they had all of the first five books of the Bible memorized, word for word, because you can't obey 613 laws unless you've learned 613 laws. And if that sounds intimidating to us, think about trying to keep 613 laws. Learning them is the easy part. Memorizing them is the easy part. Keeping them is a whole nother story. And so in addition to the cultural aspects, these laws regulated it. They represented the spiritual duty of Israel to keep their end of the covenant with God. And so they kept these laws as best they could, and when they would break these laws, they would present sacrifices because they had sinned. And when someone sins, a blood sacrifice had to be offered. And so that was kind of the story of their lives. They would live, learn the laws, try to keep the law, work, fail, work, strive, fail, work, strive, fail. And maybe that resonates with some of us. We (laughs) We find ourselves in a place where we're trying to do better, and we fail. And we work, and we strive, and we fail. And we work, and we strive, and we fail. And so it should be easy for us to understand, with as strict of a covenant as the Jews were trying to follow, why they would consider it a burden. In Acts 15, what we'll see in a little while, they referred to the Mosaic law as a yoke, as a burden, because it was that. It was a burden. And so when Jesus came, he set the new covenant that he was instituting in contrast with what they were used to. In Matthew 11:28 uh, through 30, Jesus said this. He said, "Come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." What did he mean by that? Jesus was alluding to the new covenant that he was instituting, and it was not going to be a covenant that was based on laws and duty. It was going to be a covenant that was based solely on believing in him, trusting in him. So the Israelites, they had continually failed and sacrificed, failed and sacrificed, and Jesus beckoned them in the same way that he beckons you and he beckons me and everybody outside of these doors— If you're working, if you're striving, if you're tired, come to me. Come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's essentially saying, give me the burden of your salvation. It will crush you. You cannot carry that burden, but I can, and I have. So come to me, and I will give your soul rest. So if you hear anything else today, I want you to remember that. That's the main point of today's sermon is that Jesus wants you to come to him. If you haven't already, if you are trusting in your own works, if you're trusting in, if someone had, would ask you today, what will happen when you die? Are you going to heaven? Are you going to hell? If your answer would be, well, I hope so because I try to be a good person. I try to say my prayers. I try to read my Bible. I try to go to church. If I don't go to church, I try to watch a sermon or listen to something. If, if those are your answers, I hope that today will call you to Jesus in a way that, that brings you to lay your burden of your, sacrifice, of your salvation at his feet and take his burden and take his yoke because he's promised to carry it for you. So in all of the 613 laws of the Old Testament law, of the Torah, there were 10 prominent ones that we most of us have probably heard of. That is the Ten Commandments. So for us just to see how much of a burden the Mosaic Law was for the Israelites who were trying to keep it to maintain their end of the bargain, so to speak, with God, I want us just to consider a couple of them. If you would like, you can turn to Deuteronomy 5, but the couple that I'm going to reference will be on the screen as well. These were just 10 of the 613, so there's 603 more, but we're just going to see how we would do with just a few of them so that we can appreciate the weight that was on the Jews' shoulders at the time. In verse 7, we see Deuteronomy 5, 7, we see the very first commandment. And it seems like an easy one. You shall have no other gods before me. J.I. Packer, a famous theologian, says that this is the fundamental and foundational commandment. It's first in importance and it's basic to every other. And like I said, it seems pretty easy. Most of us have not uh, knowingly or willfully worshipped a God other than the God of the Bible. But people have pointed out, scholars have pointed out, that this commandment is its framed in a negative way. It, it says what you're not supposed to do. But there's a way that you can understand it that tells us what you are supposed to do. And they say, and positively stated, the first commandment is, you shall have no or you shall have me as your Lord and your God. So the positive statement of the first commandment is have me as your Lord and your God. Another theologian writes that to do that is to always contemplate, always fear and always worship God's majesty, to participate in his blessings, to seek his help at all time, to recognize Through all of our praises, to celebrate the greatness of his works at all times. It means to have all of this as the one and only goal of every activity of your life. That's heavy. But Jesus used more brevity and made an even more comprehensive statement when he said that the first and the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, with your whole being. And I speak for myself when I say that I have failed that more times than I would like to admit. More times than I would like to admit, I have loved God with only small pieces of myself. So I am O for one now. The second commandment you'll see in verses 8 and 9, I'll read that. Deuteronomy 5, 8 and 9 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is the or that is on the earth below, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Paraphrased, the second commandment is, do not worship anything other than God. So I ask you, have you ever worshipped something other than God with your time and your affections and your money, or anything else that you have? I suspect that the answer for all of us is yes. And the bad news is that if you thought you had kept the first one, but you failed at this one, that means you failed the first one too. So now we're all on equal footing. We're all over for 2 here. Let's, let's consider one more. The third commandment in verse 5. You shall not take the Lord your God in vain. The name of your Lord, the Lord your God in vain that's not talking about, well, it's not only talking about you're not supposed to use God's name as a pseudo-expletive. That's included, but it's not limited to that. Other ways that we can take God's name in vain is to use God's name to say that he endorses a certain teaching that is not true. We can take God's name in vain when we say that God told us something that he didn't tell us. And the tricky part about that is we might even believe that he told us something, but if he did not tell us that and we say that God told me this, we have taken his name in vain. Another way that we can take God's name in vain is to say that God is okay with something or, or even might be okay with something that he has explicitly said is sin. And we feel our culture pushing on us to do that every day. Name the issue. Our culture wants you to say that at mo- or at least I'm sorry, at least, God will be okay with it. He might not love it, He might not teach it, but at least at least it's not sin. He's not going to send anybody to hell over it. If we agree to say that about something that God says is sin, then we take God's name in vain. And then as Christians We even have a new way or an additional way that we can take God's name in vain. We all call ourselves Christians, which means Christ-like. That's what Christian means. So by identifying myself as a Christian, any time that I live in a way that does not honor Christ or in a way that Christ would not approve of, even for a moment, I take God's name in vain. So I trust that you're seeing... The pattern here, we don't do well, even with the ten most prominent laws. You could continue reading down the Ten Commandments and you might find some that you think you would do well at. For instance, most of us have probably never murdered anyone. I haven't asked everyone, so I I said probably. (laughs) I hope not. But but the problem is if, if you get there and you think, well, I got that one. But you read what Jesus said. He said, if you've hated your brother in your heart, then you're guilty of breaking that commandment too. Similarly, if you've lusted after someone, Jesus said, in your heart, you've lusted someone after someone who is not your spouse, then you're guilty of breaking the law that forbids adul- adultery. So we see that God's not only focused on our external actions and what we do, God is judging our hearts and our minds as well, which means none of us, Are good. Doesn't matter how how much we try. It doesn't matter uh, how good we are compared to the person on the street who we like to compare ourselves to to make ourselves feel better. We fail miserably when it comes to comparing ourselves to God's standard for goodness and God's standard for righteousness. And so it's no wonder that the Jews found the Mosaic law to be crushing and such a burden that they couldn't bear. Because we've just tried three, and we've struck out, and they had 610 more. So Paul wrote the first four chapters, three chapters of Romans, really to highlight the fact that all people from all nations and all religions have fallen short. So in a very brief summary, Romans 1 says that all people, Jews and Gentiles, have traded God's glory in for lesser things. We have worshiped created things instead of worshiping the creator. And Romans 2 comes and it says, so Jews who who they felt like they had an exalted status among uh, the other peoples of the world because they had this this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and, and Paul said, listen, don't boast in that. Don't feel proud about that because that covenant, that law condemns you. None of you, have kept that law. And because you've not kept that law, you have sinned. And because you've sinned, you are deserving of God's just judgment. So I imagine that the Roman readers, so the Church of Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles. So I imagine that the Gentile readers were like, whew, glad we don't have that law. (laughs) But then Paul talks to them and he says, but you who don't have the law, you show that God's law is on your heart because it's in the form of your conscience. And so if you've ever broken your conscience, violated your conscience, even though you don't have the Mosaic law, you are just as condemned as your Jewish brother who's in your church who had the law and couldn't keep it. All of you have fallen. And then chapter 3 comes along, and he spends the first third of it, quarter of it, just pounding home that same thing. You've all sinned. You've all fallen short doesn't matter what tribe you're from, what nation you're from, what, what religion, ethnicity, you're all sinners. And then Paul even goes so far as to stitch in verses 10 through 18, three, uh, Romans 3, 10 through 18, stitches together several of their favorite songs just to highlight the fact that they've all fallen short. It's in several of the different psalms that are in your Bible are just stitched together just to highlight you've all fallen short. None of you are good by God's standard. You imagine being in the Church of Rome. You've been sitting there. You got this letter from Paul. You're excited to hear about. You all gather together. You all sit down, and then this person he reads it over you, and he says, "Chapter one, you're a sinner. Chapter two, you're a sinner. We're at chapter three and a half. We're still sinners." <laughs> imagine the sigh of relief that came whenever Romans three twenty-one through twenty-four was read. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. I imagine, I imagine there was a collective sigh of relief in the crowd at that point. But then Paul goes on to pen what has become one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, Romans 4. And Romans 4, the whole thing is about Abraham, and it's all an answer to the question that he has created in the mind of his readers up until that point. And that question is, well, from the Jews, well, if we had the, the Mosaic law and we couldn't keep it, and so we're all condemned, and the Gentile readers are reading the same letter, and they're thinking, well, we, we've tried to be good comp- Paired to our neighbors and by our own standards we've tried to be good and clearly we've all violated our consciences. So we are also condemned. How is anyone going to be saved? How is anyone going to be justified? And then Paul writes Romans 4. And the whole thing is about Abraham and Abraham's faith and how Abraham was counted righteous by God on account of his faith. In my summary of the last several verses of that chapter, Paul writes that Abraham was counted righteous on account of his faith and that those words were written, the words that Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith, those words were were written so that we would know that the same God who counted Abraham righteous on account of his faith and his belief in God is the same God who will count us righteous when we believe in Jesus. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't work. He just believed God's word. He believed what God had promised. And the same will be true of everyone uh, who comes to Jesus, because he said, come to me, and I will take the burden of your salvation. I will give you a yoke that is easy, a burden that is light. So then the question arises, well, why did God give us the Mosaic Law in the first place? What was, what was the purpose of that? If he knew we would all fail, why give it in the first place? Why not just start with the new covenant? Galatians 3:24, Paul gives us a reason for that. He says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The word guardian doesn't translate great to our culture. Uh, some translations use the word tutor, which is a little bit more understandable for us. But in their culture, the, the word guardian, or the, a guardian was someone who uh, middle and upper class people in ancient Rome would hire to stay with their children and basically teach their children all things about life. So everything from educational things to customs to the ways to be a good Roman citizen, so to speak, That's what a guardian did. A guardian was a tutor, but not just for a subject, for life, life skills in many ways. And Paul is saying that's what the Mosaic Law was intended for. The Mosaic Law was intended to teach us that we cannot measure up to God's standard of goodness. The Mosaic Law was was meant to teach us that we need something outside of ourselves to carry the burden of our salvation because we are unable. We had to learn that before we would come to Jesus. And so when Jesus enters into human history and he says, come to me, all who are burdened, all who are tired, all who are working and who need relief, come to me and I will give rest for your souls. He was talking, about, he was talking to people who knew they needed something else. And the only reason they knew that was because they had tried to measure up to God's standards and they had failed. Jesus said his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And the reason is because it doesn't require works. It requires faith. Believing in him, coming to him, believing in him. That's what it requires. So that brings us to where we're going to end to our time today. Go ahead and turn to Acts 15. And that's where we're going to find the application for today's sermon. and where we're, What do we do with uh, the knowledge of the difference between the new covenant that Jesus instituted on faith and the old covenant um, that he came to fulfill? You may remember this story. It's the story of uh, the Jerusalem Council is what it's called. And there had been a big argument dispute had arisen in the church of Antioch. And it was because some people had come there and they'd begun teaching that in addition to believing in Jesus, you had to be circumcised according to the law of Moses if you wanted to be saved. And so a big argument broke out in Antioch about it. And you know it was a big argument because they sent Paul and Barnabas all the way from Antioch to Jerusalem to ask uh, Peter and the other elders of the church at Jerusalem, who's right? Some people are saying we have to follow the customs. Some people are saying we only have to believe in Jesus. Who's right? Before I get to Peter's um, verdict on this and and what he said, I want us to read verse 1, just a synopsis of what was being said, and then I want to chase a rabbit really quick. Acts 15.1 it says but some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers the church unless you are circumcised according to the law the custom of Moses you cannot be saved and if you look at verse 5 and this is this is my rabbit I won't chase it long I promise if you look at verse 5 you'll see also that they refer to those people who came teaching this wrong doctrine as believers There might be a hesitation in us to think that they could really be believers because they were teaching this that works. The custom of Moses had to be done in addition to faith, so they couldn't be real believers. But I think we should not lean too far into that because if we look in Galatians, the whole book is written to a church who had believed a a similar lie. And in Galatians 3, 1, Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has tricked you? You started by faith, I'm paraphrasing right now, you you started by faith and now you think that your salvation will be completed through works. But in three of the next four verses of that chapter, Paul refers to the Galatians as people who had the spirit of God. They they were Christians, but they had believed a lie and they had been deceived. What I want us to To find the encouragement, we're not gonna stay here long. The encouragement that I want us to find here in Western Christianity, and sadly it's not it's not contained to us, we've exported it, (laughs) but we are very tribal in nature in our nature. And we like to look skeptically on anyone who doesn't think about certain doctrines that aren't Christ and Him crucified as though maybe, maybe they're saved, maybe they're not. And we, we question things based on peripheral doctrines, no matter how important they might be. But what I want us to be cons- considering today is that these people were teaching a very wrong doctrine, a very wrong message, and yet they were counted as believers who had the Spirit of God. And the reason for that is because we are not saved based on how good our doctrine is. We are saved by the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. So praise God, he does not we're not going to stand before God one day and him say, "Okay, you believed in Jesus." So that's the first check. Now we've got to make sure 80% of your doctrines were correct, and as long as you hit that benchmark, you're good to go. <laughs> no. <laughs> You believed in Jesus. It doesn't matter what sins you committed. It doesn't matter uh, what good things you didn't do. It doesn't matter what wrong doctrines you believed. You believed in Jesus, and you were saved by him. And so what that should encourage in us is charity with, with other believers. What that should encourage in us is love for believers who even might believe something that is just flat wrong, and we can point to it in Scripture where it is, Paul modeled, we should try to correct their doctrine. We should try to to help them understand Scripture better. Absolutely. We don't agree to false doctrines, but we love them. And we're charitable with them, and we're patient with them, and we're gracious with them because they are saved by the same grace that we are saved by. So that's that rabbit trail. I'm going to come back, and I want us to look and see what Paul said, what his verdict was about the dispute in Antioch. If you'll look at verse 7, we're going to read Acts 15, 7 through 11. And we're going to see uh, the verdict and then we'll apply it to our lives. Verse 7, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke? There he is talking about the Mosaic law. By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Peter asked the question, why are you requiring more of these people than simply to believe in Jesus? Don't put the yoke of the law, don't put on them something that we couldn't bear either. We're going to be saved by grace through faith and so will they. Every major religion that has ever existed and that exists today teaches the same thing, ultimately. They all teach works unto salvation. Only Jesus ever taught something different. Only Jesus said, come to me, let me carry that burden for you. You just believe in me. Every other religion says you have to work, work, work. If you ask a Muslim who is a good person devoted uh, to his religion follows it as 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 closely as he can, keeps the five pillars, does everything he's supposed to. If you ask him, if you die today, and you stand before God, will you go to heaven? His answer will be, if God wills, I hope so. And the reason for that is because he believes, all Muslims believe, that when they stand before God, they will be judged based on, have my good deeds outnumbered my bad deeds? And there's no way for them to know that. I, th- I think that they can probably guess that they don't. But there's no way for them to know for certain if God is going to be merciful and count their good deeds as outnumbering their bad deeds until they stand before him. So dying, death in general, is a dreadful thing for even the most uh, reverent Muslim you will ever meet because he doesn't know what's going to happen. And I think deep down in his heart he does know. Deep down in his heart, he knows how many times he has violated his conscience and how many times he has not kept his false religion. He knows. But Jesus had come to me. Hindus believe something similar to Muslims in that they believe you're caught in a cycle of reincarnation and every birth is a rebirth until throughout all of your many lives you have done enough good works to merit enough good karma to be delivered is the word that they would be delivered uh, into moksha, uh, which is uh, breaking the cycle of reincarnation. But it takes lifetimes, plural, of good works before you can achieve that. Buddhists believe something similar. They believe that the right mixture of uh, spiritual meditation and, the, and physical labor and good works enough times and you will reach nirvana. The list could go on and on and on, but Jesus says, Come to me, and I will give you rest. You won't have to work anymore. You won't have to strive anymore. But unfortunately, the decision that we read by Peter, that we are all saved by faith and that there's nothing else that is necessary, that message doesn't resonate with our human nature. And so it it repeats the, the. the fallacy that he was correcting repeats itself over and over and over. We see, even though that happened at the Jerusalem Council, and I'm sure that word spread, like I mentioned earlier, the book of Galatians was written to a church that had believed the exact same lie. They had began believing in faith that they would be saved, but then they moved on to works and thinking that they had to supplement their faith with works. And so Paul wrote a whole letter to them that's contained in your Bible correcting that. And I think that if we're all honest, we could all resonate with that. Even as Christians, if you've put your faith in Jesus, I imagine that everybody in here can look at a time in their life, and maybe even now, where you think that God has you on a performance-based plan, where you think that God in order for God to really have favor on you, you might not say salvation, of course Jesus did that, but in order for God to love me with the love that only God has or in order for God to show favor on me, I have to do, read my Bible a certain amount of times or pray a certain amount of times or maybe I should start fasting or give to charity more. Fill in the blank with the good thing. We work, we work, we work thinking that we're earning God's favor and his love And we're not. Jesus has done that for us. Jesus did that. Or maybe we think on the other side of that, I'm a Christian, but I'm still struggling with the same temptations. I'm still struggling with the same sin issue that I haven't been able to shake. And maybe I'm not a Christian. Listen, guys, the the process of sanctification, when we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and He dwells in us and He begins Uh, to conform us to Christ's image, and that continues throughout our entire life. So from the time that we believe until we reach uh, the throne room of heaven, we will be in this process. Where you are in that process does not determine if you are saved, and it does not determine if God loves you, and it does not determine if God has favor on you. God is completing his work in you as a result of already loving you, as a result of already showing favor on you, as a result of already saving you. So let that weight be taken off of your shoulder. Put it at Jesus' feet. Trust him because you've believed in Jesus and he says that if you've believed in him that you can you can rest. And so what I want us to close with, leave here today with, is thinking on this. If you're in here and and you've not believed in Jesus, you have not uh, submitted your life to him, and you would answer the question honestly of will I go to heaven or what will happen after my death, if you would answer that with anything other than I will spend eternity with God because I have believed in Jesus and Jesus did everything that I could not do so that he could take the burden of my salvation off of my shoulders and carry it for me. If your answer is anything other than that, I urge you to lay that burden down. Believe in Jesus. Follow him. He's done it. He's done it for you. It's not yours to carry. But Christian... If you're in here and you have, you have done that, but you find yourself kind of like the Galatians, having begun the race by faith, and now you're trying to uphold God's love for you, uphold God's favor for you, and, and earn something, put that weight down at Jesus' feet. You're not resting. You're not resting in his finished work. You're trusting in your own abilities, and we've shown just by three commandments they. <laughs> Your abilities aren't very good. (laughs) So rest. Let him complete the work that he has begun in you and trust him to do that. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And the testimony of Scripture is that if we come to Jesus and we trust that God's word is true and his promises are true and that God keeps his promises that he has taken the burden of our salvation off of our shoulders. He has taken the burden of earning his love and his favor off of our shoulders and he's carrying it for us. If we believe him like Abraham believed him, then we will be counted righteous as well. So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this word. Thank you for carrying the burden that we could not carry. Thank you for loving us unconditionally, uh, sending your son Jesus to fulfill the law that we could not fulfill, uh, to live a perfect life that we could not live so that by faith we could be united with him and be recipients of all of the spiritual blessings that he did earn and that he did uh, merit on our behalf. God, I pray that you would um, allow that truth to sink deep in our hearts. God, allow it not to start stop in our minds, uh, but allow it to be something, uh, a truth from which we live every day and from which we relate to you. God, if there's anything in us that is um, causes us to want to be ashamed to come to you in prayer or to read your word or to go to church or anything that is in our lives that we have done in the past or that we have failed to do, God, uh, that would cause us to shrink back from you. I pray that you would uh, remove that from us from this message today. God, the the truth that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done, he has taken the burden off of our shoulders, and all we have to do is call on him, come to him, and believe in him. God, I pray that, um, that you would make that evident in all of our lives.